You are listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It's long-form one-on-one conversations with veterans in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a platform for veterans to create compelling live theater and events. My guest this week was Justin Egan, and Justin is one of those guys that it will always be a seminal name, I think, in the annals of veteran writing. Uh, certainly for the GWAT generation, um, he was on the forefront of veteran writers that uh, didn't just turn to poetry, but popularized poetry as a medium for veterans to express themselves. And uh, to finally be able to sit down with Justin and talk to him was was obviously a pleasure it, it we were doomed to failure there were, i knew there was no way we were going to cover everything that uh warranted covering uh with somebody like justin you kind of have to to pick your battles about what you're going to dive into and which rabbit holes you're going to chase um i chose to look at the diversity of writing that justin has done his um Adahi epic historical fiction that he's working on um some of which is out now and the rest uh, soon to come i think is really interesting and worth exploring uh as is tufel hunt in 1918 is uh, another relatively recent historical fictional piece obviously we talk about poetry because that's what he has built so much of his brand on but the way that that writing has now merged into other forms and how his writing is developing and what you know avenues it's taking is interesting not to mention his personal story, which you know you can't get to the artist without understanding really where they're coming from and why they are who they are. So I had a blast talking with him. He's just a great dude um, and uh, so much fun to talk to. Uh, I say this almost every week, um, but it's doesn't mean it's not true. We, we easily could have done another couple of hours, um, but just uh, such a great guy to talk to and so much insight into... You know, the difference between fiction and poetry and, you know, uh, the, the nuances of writing historical fiction. Um, and then, of course, just the, the warrior path that he walked is worth exploring as well. So for a whole bunch of reasons, I was glad I finally got to talk with Justin. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director at VetRep. And this is The Savage Wonder of Justin Egan. All right, dude. This is as magical as it gets. It's the show. Welcome. We're here. We're here. This we're is here. this is for real now. Yeah, um, dude. So we were talking off air um, just a second ago about uh, you know you finally being able to talk about all your experiences in the last five years have been nothing but talking about your experiences, and it's funny because that was actually something that I wanted to ask you about. Um, Reading uh, Tuffelhunden and reading about your, your choice to go into World War One and talk about those experiences, the very first thing I thought of is how no World War One veterans were writing those, these books, and I'm like, what the fuck were you all like? I mean, and obviously we're a different era, we're a different generation. We do like sharing more. We are a bit more cathar. We we look for catharsis probably more right. than they did, but um. Yeah, talk about that, about just the, the, um, where you were as far as be feeling bottled up. And then 
I don't know. Let's just speculate. I don't know what the fuck people did in other wars and like how and like I mean, it's no wonder that it was like always oh, a war veteran and everybody kind of stays awake. It's like, dude, I mean, I don't know what other recourse do you have? You don't have Instagram. You don't have poetry. You don't right. have Kindle publishing. What the yeah. fuck are you doing? Like you're drinking and you know putting a gun to your head. I don't know what else you do. Right. I mean, I, I, honestly, it was it was it was frustrating. I think the origins of where I wanted to go with this story, it was frustrating for me that as a Marine, you know, it is, uh, I joined the Marine Corps in 2008 and, you know, it was one of those things where you met like higher ups and, and like first sergeants and stuff like higher enlisted guys. They'd always be like, Hey, double dog, what's up, double dog, blah, 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 double dog. And it became like this, like, um, comical, like, like just like sort of term that they use, yeah. you know, like with, with, with the, you know, like to, to you and to your, you know, Marines and like the origins of that term is not a comical scenario. It's not a comical thing, right. you know, and, and, right. and some, somehow throughout the evolution of like the Marine Corps and, you know, how we talk to each other and this and that, you know, we, Hey, what's up, double dog. You, you, you all double dogs doing good. It became like this, you know, obviously it, it is like kind of like a term of endearment, you know, or, or right. it initially became, or like, I felt like it was, but I don't know, man, like I, I got frustrated thinking about all the times that higher ups just like jokingly like would be like ha 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 with the devil dog and at the end of the day like i was like you know i was having a beer with my dad and i thought to myself i was like man it's kind of frustrating that you know these guys these marines you know they fought you know tooth and nail with fucking you know um like the M17 brass knuckle trench knife right like they fought with these the the m1917 like they they fought with these these weapons and this like brutality and like this, this sort of savagery that, that is like almost forgotten in today's military. And it, it, it pissed me off, man. It it just, it pissed Mm. me the fuck off that like there was this term and it, it it had such a regal savage origin origin. And like nowadays we just use it as like some fucking comical, like, Hey, double dog, y'all do y'all having fun today? Wrote, you know, whatever, blah, 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 two full hunting this and that. But it's like, well, what about the guys that actually did that shit? Like, what about them? And, you know, what about the real story of that? Right. And I don't know. I wanted to write a story that, you know, told the, like the real true origins, even if it's fictional, you know, like told like the real, in my mind, like if I, if, if I'm a Marine and I, and I wake up and I hear the term and I hear the origins of devil dog at boot camp and I learned about the origins of it, my mind immediately went to like, what does that look like? What does that sound like? What does that feel like? What does that mm. smell like? What does that taste like? Like, what is that? What is that moment? You know? And that's what I wanted to do. And that's it. And it, and it I, I drank, I, I drank more beers with my dad that night. I got a little hammered and I literally pounded out like 30,000 words in the matter of like that night, like a couple hours, like, in like, like two or three hours went by. And I was like, boom done and i was like fuck i literally i i got done i went to bed and i like blacked out i honestly don't remember like really going to bed but i, I finished it and i woke up the next morning i went out to my my computer and i had like this word document sitting there with like thirty five thousand words and i was like holy shit dude so i grabbed it and i started reading it you know and obviously i knew what i was writing but like i started editing it and stuff and mm-hmm. i spent like the next month like editing it and making you know making it you know historically accurate and this and that or whatever the case is and you know, kind of trying to build up some of these characters and, you know, something has moved around here and there. But at the end of the day, like that initial two hour, three hour session where I just pounded it out, that's that's basically the story. And I mean, 
you know, names and characters kind of had to be removed here and there. But like, mm. you know, I wanted to tell a story about the savagery of World War One, and I wanted to reground that term of Tufelhunden, right? It was always, it, it kind of became something. And then for some reason, just went to like the stratosphere of like Marine Corps lore. And I wanted yeah. to like grab it out of the stratosphere and bring it right back down to like a heavy grounded, you know, story that really showcases, you know, life, death, and this, you know, again, the savagery and brutality of like World War One and like what that looked like from, you know, my perspective, I guess, because I mean, I'm a, I'm a scholar. I'm a, I mean, I have my bachelor's degree. I'm getting my master's degree. I, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a student of history. I love reading books. I love reading uh, research papers and articles and especially stuff that stems from World War One, you know, time frame area. And, you know, I, I, I really wanted to write something and, and bring a story to life that, you know, maybe people didn't really understand was there. Why does the World War One era specifically fascinate you? I mean, certainly you could have gone to World War Two. You could have done, you know, the Pacific Theater. I mean, there's there's tons of battles to pick from. But it's funny because I also I don't know if you know Tyler Mendelson and, and the movies he's done, but he did a movie called The Hun. Uh, he's a Marine um, and he uh he did a short film and we did it at the Savage Wonder Festival, but again, it's World War One, and it was like, and it was like, what is the desire to go back to where it, it just seems funny to me, like that there's this drive to go back to World War One. Is it because it's more uncharted territory, like World War II's kind of been picked over? We've heard a lot of stories. What is it about World War One and that time frame that's so appealing? Yeah, I think I think that you 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 almost hit the nail like on the head, right? It is like uncharted territory. Like, yeah, we have history, we have books and stuff, and we have like some sort of you know, some film, you know, and some mm. movies that were been made, like you know, um, "They Shall Not Grow Old" by Peter right. Jackson, and you know, nineteen seventeen by um, Sam Mendes. Not Sam Mendes. Sam Mendes is a young like singer. Um, no, no, no. Sam Mendes. You're right. No, it is Sam Mendes. Sean Mendes. Is the Sean, singer. Sean, Sean Mendez is, and singer. I'm very embarrassed that I know that. Let me just say that that right now. But yeah, that's, that's no. It's, <laughs> so so it's Sam Mendez is the director. Sean Mendez is a, is it? I was at least you know I was right. I was right when I said <laughs> you were it, right. So you were right. Yeah, yeah. I I uncovered my uh, my youth there a little <laughs> bit, right? Sean Mendez, no, but um, but yeah, World War One is just very uncharted, and I think that uh, you know, the violence that World War One created and the death that followed and the modernization of technology and the battle space and evolution of warfare i think a lot of that is why i think world war one mm -hmm. needs to be revisited more mm -hmm. because there is, you know, when you talk about technology and the evolution of warfare, right? I mean, the modern Marine Corps was, you know, you know, modern Marine Corps picking up machine guns and light machine guns, heavy machine guns, medium machine guns, all that, all that, like basically machine gunning teams and, um, you know, riflemen and getting, you know, longer shots and not, not having to be within a hundred, 200 yards, you know, being 500, 600, 700 yards away and, you know, taking out German officers and um, just the whole, the whole concept of, of, of um, the waves of how they, of how they yeah. fought, you know, like wave after wave after wave, and they're just going to over overwhelm the enemy and, you know, getting into that uh, forest of Bella wood and, and really getting hand to hand combat really birthed, I think like 
the tenacity and the savagery of, you know, the modern Marine Corps, right? Yeah. Like that's yeah. like, that's what John Bassalone yeah. and all these guys in world war two look to, they look to the guys that fuck shit up in world war one. And they're like, yo, we can do it like them, but we can do it better. Cause we have, you know, whatever the case is, but those were their heroes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that there's so much to happen, you know, politically as well. You know, there is, this was a time of the Ottoman Empire, you know, after the Ottoman Empire, we sort of became a more, you know, we started doing like neoliberalism, sort of like dropping democracy, trying to like do the democracy thing after World War One, after the, you know, they lost. And we, we know the, the Treaty of Versailles with like um, with with, uh, with Germany and not having to build up arms, all this other bullshit, dude, that like kind of, you know, it it laid the groundwork for World War Two. You know, sure. like it, it really did. And I think that, you know, World War Two <laughs> is obviously so much bigger and it's so much more complex and it's so much more involved with so many more uh, players in, in, in the war space that it, it is so much bigger. It is so much more, you know, in depth than that we can really comb over it. You know, America was in World War One for, you know, at the end of 1917 yeah. all the way to like the end of 1918. So like maybe a year. Yeah. You know, Americans won World War II for five fucking years, four years, you know, so it was obviously there is a lot more battles and there's more stuff to to, to involve. But I think, again, World War One is is it, it showcased to the world that like countries are willing to do certain things and that's throw fucking bodies at each other until, you know, one of them comes out on top and says, I have more bodies than you and I still have more ammo. So I went, you know, and that's. Yeah, and not to mention it's it's probably exhibit A in terms of just the arbitrary nature. Like if you want to look at like like we hear I hear a lot on Instagram, I see a lot of stuff get posted about war and the politicians on that. And like, yeah, that's true. But you know, we did have 9-11. Right. World War II, you know, there was Pearl Harbor. World War One, that was fucking unmotivated. There was okay. no reason for World War One, and that truly was the last war that I think you really. It, it's hard to make any argument that that needed to be fought, and I think it's such an archetype of waste, of waste and lack and lack of love, lack of appreciation for your soldiers. And like you say, the technology was changing, so the slaughter was just more. Yeah. I want to actually ask you about that because when I was reading, um, when I was reading the book. The hand-to-hand combat, the waves of bodies, the mustard gas, all that stuff going on, the first thing that crossed my mind was for you, being that so much of your writing has been exhuming your own combat experiences, what could you relate to and what were you like, shit, this is different than anything I know when you were writing it? Was there stuff where you were like, yeah, there's, I know this part. And I might know this one moment, but fuck, I haven't seen bodies stack like that. Like, you right. know, like what was different for you? What was a challenge for you in capturing that? So, I mean, honestly, you know, hand to hand combat is not something that, you know, every person sees when they go to Iraq or Afghanistan post 9-11. I mean, it, you know, the hand to hand combat thing kind of fizzled out. I feel like, you know, after Korea there's yeah. a few of it, few, you know, there's obviously a few instances here and there in Vietnam that, you know, we hear about or read about. So for me, I think 
you know, understanding like hand to hand combat. I mean, I've been in physical fights before. I've been in physical hand to hand, you know, fights, uh, obviously not to the death. Obviously, I'm still here. And the other person is obviously still here. And I'm not in fucking prison for murder or attempted murder or self-defense or whatever the fuck is. But, you know, it was to me, it was the um, it was. What is what does hand to hand combat do to somebody Mm -hmm. throughout like a day long time period. Right. And I, and I think that that and the mustard gas, I mean, obviously with the gas, I really, I really tapped back into, you know, getting gas with CS gas and shit like that. Mm-hmm. I really tapped back into that. And all the times that we would go to the gas chamber and have to take our mask off mm-hmm. and we were there feeling that and how did that feel and what did that look like? And how did that, you know, all that, 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 yeah. that type of sensory overload that, 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 pr- that produces, you know, with that. And then, Obviously, I'm right. I feel like I was writing an account that's never happened or I never I've never read an account. You know, maybe I haven't read it too many. Maybe I haven't read enough World War One books. I feel like I have, but maybe I haven't. But, you know, I, I feel like I haven't read an account of, you know, somebody starting somewhere and then ending nine hours later. And then what does that look like when you're actually there? You know, what does that feel like again? So the challenging part I feel like was honestly, maybe the whole entire thing was really kind of trying to like Mm. in my mind, using my imagination, you know, if, if you will, you know, using my imagination and also using the education and the knowledge that I have from my life and learning about, you know, reading about hand-to-hand combat and reading about world war one combat and the violence that, that it was and kind of taking all of that and then kind of throwing it into a blender and going, all right, let's see if I can make it my own and let's see yeah. if it can come out as authentic as I envision it to. And so I just hit the fucking blender and, you know, again, I was, I was pretty fucking lit when I wrote the book. So I was, you know, I was, um, you know, like seven or eight, like yinglings deep, you know, over the course of like two or three hours. And I was sitting there with, you know, I, I got pretty drunk with my dad and I know I don't really drink. I'm not a drinker. You know, I, I really don't drink. Um, so I, I really got kind of, you know, drunk, you know, and I, yeah. and I, and I just really wanted to tap into that, you know, creative uh, side and, and tap into that violence and tap into that, the, the, the brutality and tap into the, the realistic, like the visceral aspect of like what it is going to be like, because obviously I've been in Afghanistan where we didn't shower for 90 days. You know, I've been in Afghanistan where we had to boil fucking water, you know, right. we had to, you know, live a certain way and it was very agonizing and it was very painful and it sucked and you know getting you know getting hit by ieds is one thing you know but that's that doesn't that doesn't really happen in tufelhunden right like right. you're not getting blown up i mean there's artillery maybe but you're not getting blown up right so it's a very what is the gritty feel like right and so that yeah. i had to tap into all the times that i didn't shower and what did that feel like when i moved mm-hmm. my arms mm-hmm. and you know underneath my arms and that like kind of like corrosive fucking feeling and you're like fuck this sucks you know and i really wanted that to be the feeling every moment in tufel hunting because in my mind that same sort of like corrosive feeling is in my imagination what world war one felt like right like in my mind from what i've read from people's written firsthand accounts you know how I wrote it was how I imagined what it would be. And, you know, I feel like that's, 
you know, it's been, and that's that's with every book that I've really written. I mean, every fiction book, because I've only written two. I've written Adahi and Tufel Hunting. So it's, you know, with Adahi, it's a revolutionary war, which you know, right. you kind of have to go on different a uh, different journey and a different look and a different like um aesthetic to understand that and a different mindset. So with Tufel Hunting, it was very like if I can combine everything that I know about World War One hand-to-hand combat and like getting gas, if I can combine that with my own personal experiences of being gassed and being in, in, in fist fights and being jumped and having like my body just taken down to a different level and, you know, like breaking my nose and getting a black eye. And what does that like feel like in my face? You know, what did that make me feel mm-hmm. like? Like, what is, what does it feel? You know, so all of that, I tried to just blend it all together and then make it some sort of coherent understanding of like a sensory overload of what, you know, the book is, you know, and, and I hope, that I, you know, I, I, I accomplished that mission because, you know, I, I tried, you know, I mean, I no, tried to it, make it. I mean, it, no, it's, it's a savage piece of work. And I mean, and I think that's exactly what you were trying to communicate and, and what you get from it. I mean, it's, it's um, no, it's a powerful piece of work. And I think the other, the other piece that I wondered about was the dialogue. Cause I think that's a huge lift is it's like, fuck, what do we, like writing dialogue for right now is hard going, how the fuck did they talk? And what was the vernacular? How did they actually, what were the colloquialisms? How did they do all that? Um, I I think that's always a huge lift. Was that a struggle for you or did you kind of fall into it and just find a rhythm and go, no, I think this is, I feel pretty comfortable with it. So what I, so what I do when I write dialogue and how I do it, my process for dialogue is I will write um, a few pages worth of like, words that they used like in like in that time frame right oh like, cool yeah, 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 yeah. like yes. touchstones so you yes. can go back to them oh that's fucking cool that's smart yeah so yeah. i'll write like a whole list of you know like especially with adahi because i mean that takes place in the 1770s yeah. you know what i mean so yeah how the fuck does that even work right so it's like I, I, you know, what's funny is I wrote a book called 68, like the year 1968 and it's about a, a bunch of marines in vietnam and i wrote about 40,000 words of it and um I gave it to my buddy who's in the military now and still, he was in, he was in the Marine Corps with us. He was in Marine Corps with me. And then he got out and he got his degree. He went back to the Marine Corps and I gave it to him to read. And he was like, bro, this sounds like they're in Afghanistan. He's like, you got to fix up the dialogue. And that was my first like awakening to like, and that that was my first attempt at a fiction novel. And that was like in 2019 or 2018 or something. It was a, you know, and I I never went through with publishing it. I never went through with like, you know, saying anything about it, but I, I gave it to him and he was like, yo, this sounds like, you know, they're in Afghanistan you got to fix a dialogue. And I was like, all right. So that from, from that moment, that, that kind of criticism allowed me to figure out, all right, well, how can I fix that? How can I fix dialogue? How can I make dialogue time period accurate? Right. So, yeah. So what I did with what I, what I do now is that I, again, I, I make a list of, I go back to, all right. So let's say, 19, uh, Tupel Hunter 1918 takes place in 1918, right? So the, most of these guys are like 20 years old. So, you know, they were raised, uh, you know, the early 1900s, right? 1910s, 1915, 1905 area. So like, mm-hmm. I go back to that time period, anything from like 1890 to like mm-hmm. 1917, 1918, 
I go back and I, and I, and I read and I, and I go read like, um, like if you go read like Teddy, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's like autobiography and shit. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like go tap into Like he was a president during this time, like during the right. time before Woodrow Wilson and shit, you know, he was sure. a president early, you know, early 20th century. So, you know, he wrote an autobiography, you know, he was, if you go back and read like speeches and go read presidential speeches or, you know, congressman speeches or um, senator speeches, or if you go read um, like how congressmen talk to each other during their uh, sessions and stuff like that, you can get a lot of dialogue from that because it's all recorded. It's all, you know, there is yeah. literally dialogue from the 18 fucking forties of senators right. talking about immigration. I mean, what the, what the fuck, you know, you can yeah. go download that and you go download that and then you boom, now you get ha- what, how people are answering other people and how people say things to other people and what kind of words they say. And so I did that with Tufel Hunden and I made a, I made a solid list, but you know, at the end of the day, I also tried to keep it, you know, kind of flowing with my storytelling and not, I don't want to make it to where it's hard to read. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's got to work for a 2022 audience or right. 2021 audience. Yeah. When it came exactly. out. Yeah. Right. Dude, right. That's yeah. so, so, so correct. You know, like it, it definitely has to work with this audience. Like if, you know, you, if you give it back to somebody who in 1918, they're going to be like, what the fuck? And you give it to somebody now, they're like, wow, this, you know, this sounds really good, you know, but it, right. so it's all, it's all just on how we, on how we interpret things and, and take it in. But I do think that, you know, I wrote a few things in there. Like, you know, there is one thing in there about, you know, um, like Sergeant Young and the corp, like one of Lance corporals, like wants to know his first, you know, he's like, well, you know, what about your first name or whatever? And he's like, you know, mm-hmm. if you want to know my first name, you're going to have to buy me a Coke and take me to the fair. You know what I mean? Like, right. Right. That because that's that was that was a thing, you know. They had fucking fairs. They had the World right. Fair. They had fairs back then, and right. Coke was invented in like 1886 right. or something or 1890. So it was an it was an active drink that people drank at the time, right? And it was a thing like, yo, you're gonna have to buy me a Coke and take me to the fair. Like that's a thing, you know. Like that. So yeah, there's little things like that 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 I wanted to like throw in there to where, you know, and and there was another one about like Tennessee moonshine or something I wrote in there. You know what I mean? Like. That's right. a fucking thing, you know, like right. West Virginia, Tennessee right. moonshine. That's, you know, 1930s is coming up. You know what I'm yeah. saying? We yeah. running moonshine and, you know, having no money is going to be a thing in the next 10 years. So why wouldn't moonshine still be a thing 10 years prior? No, totally. And I think the regional, I think something we've lost nowadays, it's funny because with all the stuff we do about, you know, diversity and all that, it's funny that, uh, you know, it used to be a big deal if you were German or Scots Irish or Italian like that was a big that was a big fucking deal and the different the geography like where you were from really meant a lot now it's a lot more homogenized and it's kind of like we still think you know we we still kind of balkanize ourselves but it's in a different way and i think that that you know for that time period to kind of just have some some hints like you did about um yeah that you know, different parts of the country mean something different. And there aren't that many places for everybody to come together. It's right. not the internet. It's not like, it's like, oh yeah, there's a student in California doing this thing. It's like, yeah, that, that wasn't a, like, nobody would have known that back then. Right. Um, what did you find more challenging to full or out Oh man, probably out Honestly, yeah, I, I bet he is a, a, a very, very, I mean, I'm in the process right now, the last two, two weeks of, of putting out a second edition and re re-editing it and putting out a second edition because the first one has so many fucking errors in it. It's like unbelievable that I actually published it with that many errors. It's, it's, it's kind of pathetic to be honest with you. Um, what, kind, but, what kind of errors are we talking about? 
like grammatical stuff yeah grammatical stuff okay. you know there's there's a couple things here and there where i you know i don't put like an apostrophe or you know i i, I really rushed it i rushed i rushed the the release of it because what i did is i told people i was going to put it out by this one date and i couldn't i didn't have it edited by a certain time and i was like you know what and i, and I was using grammarly like for free at the time uh-huh. so, it didn't, so it didn't catch everything and i was like all right this is good enough and i put it out there and, you know, I, some people, a bunch of people got it or whatever. And they were like, yo, there's an editing thing here. There's an editing thing here. You know, this is this is a three pound cannonball and you're you're shooting out of a six pound cannon, you know, and I was like, fuck, dude, like it's so because there's like, like literally out is like on another fucking level of yeah. like compartmentalization of like of like storytelling. Like there's so much fucking going on in out I mean, literally, there's so much that. Not only am I putting out a second, a full second edition, but I'm also breaking Adahi because Adahi is broken into three parts. It's part one, part two, part three. So what I did is I'm releasing part one as a book, part two as a book, and part three as a book. So you don't have to read the whole fucking book as 600 word, you know, 600 pages or whatever. You can read it, you know, 150, 150, 150, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like easier to digest because again, it's, it's such a big fucking story in the way that. I mean, granted, you know, Tufel Hunden is 60 pages or 69 pages, and it takes place over nine hours, right? right. Adahi takes place over like two and a half years, and it's like 600 fucking pages, like 120,000 words. Right. You know, so it's, then there's so many characters at Adahi, and there's so many things that, that, that events that happen to Adahi's life throughout those two years that it's a very dynamic thing. And there's, and he's moving, you know, he's, it starts out with, him on the King's highway in like South Carolina. And then, you know, he's in Boston and then he stays in Boston for a little bit and some shit happens in Boston. And then he has to go to Philadelphia and then he's in Philadelphia for a little bit. And he stays in Philadelphia basically for like almost the remainder of the book. And then he goes to Nassau. Right. And then, then the fun, then like the climax of the finale takes place in Nassau. And then like, uh, Agador Ivy, the bad guy, you know, he's in London and he goes over to Boston. He gets hurt, goes back to London and he goes to Philadelphia. Then he goes to Nassau. And then you have like, it's just little- so much research. Yeah. Dude, so exactly. many things to freak. I got, we got back up and take a 30,000 foot view of this. What, what drove you to write out of heat? Why did you get that ambitious? So honestly, man, I, I, I personally, and this is just me personally, I'm sure like nobody's going to ever agree with me on this. I don't think there's enough like epic, epic stories out there. Like there's a lot of like, I love that. I love that point of view. I love that point of view. I, I love trying to bring the epic back and do more of it. Um, it's a tall fucking task, but right. that's, that's awesome. I mean, that's a great instinct. Yeah. So like, honestly, like the epic, I think needs to be returned to like, like you're saying, right? Like nobody, nobody fucking does epics anymore. Like look at Dune. Yeah. Bro, yeah. Yeah. Fucking amazing. And then I just made this movie about it. The movie is fucking amazing. Every and movie. It's the that- second one. And it's the second time, the second bite right. of that apple. Yes, I mean, they, exactly. they tried that once before, but it's right. And you keep coming back to the same stuff. It's like Shakespeare. You got to keep coming back to it because there's no, no new stuff replacing right. it. Right, you know. dude, exactly. That's why there's so many yeah. fucking Macbeth movies and shit. Like, right. it's crazy, right. dude. And you're like, well, what the fuck? Well, why don't we have good stories? And, well, because nobody's fucking producing them. Nobody's putting them out there. Nobody's talking. Nobody's re- nobody's taking the time to create. Everybody just wants to fucking boom. I want to be TikTok or I want to be Instagram or I want to yep. be on YouTube or I want to write a fucking book about today's fucking bullshit. Well, 
what about like fun fucking adventure action adventure stories that have like real stakes and like real characters and like real um, ambitions and real emotions and real fucking things that are happening like like but you know and over a over a period of you know 10 year period yeah and over the span of the entire globe you know like because in adahi book two it starts out with him in cuba and then he goes to peru and then he goes to japan and then he ends up in london and the final the finale is in london so it's like you're going like around and then back and then, or, you know, or going, you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's so fucking yeah. big that it's like, you know, the second book is going to be double the size of the first one. And the first one's fucking huge. And I literally, the first one is designed to just be like a intro to the world, intro to the characters mm. and intro to like the story of what is going on with Adahi and Agador and the Orion Pentagonum. Like that's really meant to be it because we you know if you, if you really look at the story of Adahi book one, the story hasn't even really started. I mean, mm-hmm. it hasn't even really started. I mean, it, it kind of, it, it, I guess it, it starts in a way that like at the end of part one, Agador and Adahir are fighting at the mug tavern and Agador sees the shard hanging from the, his neck. And he's like, fuck, that is one of those pieces of the fucking Orient Pentagonum. And then that's like, that like starts his, you know, He's like, fuck, dude, I need to, I need to, I need to go get this. I need to convince a King to like, let me go get this because if I get that, then, you know, it's all like personal goals for him. It's like he wants to be made into a knight. You know, he's Agador's only drive is like impress the king, be in the good graces of the king and to be made a knight under King George III. And then just kind of like sit back in London and do the king's bidding or whatever the fuck he wants yeah. to do, because yeah. there's like a weird relationship there. I'm not going to say it's like a homo relationship, but it's definitely like a weird sort of fucking relationship where they where he's weirdly like wants to like always impress the king you know what i'm saying yeah. and the king yeah. is like he knows that he's you know it's a it's a weird like di- di- dynamic between those two but you know like there's there's just so fucking much dude you know and, and again what made me want to write it again you know there's just no epics and yeah. i don't and honestly there's not any epics where it takes place in a revolutionary war right, right. and right. i love the revolutionary yeah. war time frame I love the independence, you know, the war of independence. I mean, anything from like 1760 to like 1801, 1802, or like 1790 is like fucking beautiful. I love that time period because it's like, there's so much happening. And I know a lot of people don't really give a shit about the American, you know, um, the, like the colonial history, because like, you know, whatever, like, they're like, well, how can, you know, you write about all men are created equal and still be, you know, supporting slavery or whatever. But, you know, like I've read enough books to understand that, you know, a lot of the found the, the, the founding framers, founding framers or whatever, like, you know, either they by the time they died, they released their slaves or they they were like vehemently, vehement, vehemently like against slavery or like they were just like, well, fuck sure. it. We're going to have slaves sure. anyway, whatever the case is. You know, I can't change the way that the world works right now, but right. I can change right. this, you know. So it's like you kind of have to be like you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt and go. Yeah, well, all right, fuck it, whatever. And so, if you can get past that, or well, whatever, well, it was it was the rule, not the exception back then. I mean, right, exactly. that that it's not it doesn't excuse it, but it's like, yeah, I mean, that you know, not a noble quality, but it was a constant of the world back then. That that right, was not exactly. unique to us. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly, right. exactly, exactly. So, I mean, once you get past that, you know, I love I love that time period, right? And I figured. I really love Last of the Mohicans, one of my favorite books. I love that book a lot. And mm-hmm. and I really love Dune. 
and one of my another one of my favorite books book series mm -hmm. um lord of the rings is by far my favorite um book point blank ever created lord of the rings and i love musashi um, mm. um Miyamoto Musashi you know he's a the so Japan's you, you wanted to get to Japan no matter what you're no like, matter what yeah dude. yeah yeah that's why Adi he has a fucking katana dude like yeah, that's, that's why he carries hilarious. a bat at, yeah you know, and speaking of Adi he's katana dude here we go like oh bad. <laughs> that that's literally his so like Adi he's katana in the book is like the katana that I have and and at my house I modeled it after my my own personal like sword. So where'd you get it? Where'd you get the? Katana? I just bought it online, man. I found it. It was wow. like a it's like Damascus steel. It's super fucking wow. like nice, and it's like it was kind of expensive, but it's red, white, and blue. Like it's red with gold flakes inside of it. Oh, that's and, fucking cool. And then the suba, like the actual the handguard is blue, like navy blue. So it's like red, you know, red, white, what, blue. Or was it from Japan or was it was it made here in the US? Was it I think this had... one was made in China, to be honest with you. Oh wow. I can't because I because what happens is China has a little like the company is Japanese, but they they build them in China. Like but everybody the, else. Okay. The steel, right. yeah. the, the yeah. steel's from fucking the steel's from Syria and the company's in Japan and they're made in China. <laughs> oh, there's globalization for you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Well, okay. So let, let me, let me pull back for, for a little bit of perspective. So 2017 was when you first started writing for public consumption, right? Yeah. Pretty much. So you had outside the wire, you did the art of warrior poetry. You did uh, parts of in love and war. You did sunrises and Hellman, all this stuff. Now you get to Adahi. Is there any degree? Well, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. How much are you still writing for yourself and your own unpacking of your military service? And how much are you now pushing forward and going, yep, got that. Feel good about that. I, there's other stories I want to tell. And that'll always be a part of me, but that's not my main focus. Right. Um, I don't know. I think that because I, I still write poetry. I mean, I still mm -hmm. actively write it. I mean, I, I just wrote a poem the other day called, um, you know, Liberty and I, and I, and I published it on my Instagram or whatever. And then I, I just archived it or whatever, but you know, I write poetry still. And I, and I still, most of my poetry I write, that's like that I need to write, you know, I'll, I'll write it because it's like one of those things that if it's for me and I need to unpack some shit or I need to address some shit or I need to, you know, be uh, get something out of my mind i'll write it in a poetry format right and that's i still do do that but i think now i've gotten to a point where like i enjoy creating and i enjoy creating you know stories and i enjoy creating like fictional characters and a fictional worlds and yeah. i want to tell stories through a fictional lens you know but I think that even with Adahi and even with Tufelhund and I'm, I'm still like unpacking my shit, you know, like in those stories and in that shit, I'm still, I mean, Adahi is me. Agador is me. You know, yeah. Thomas Young is me. I mean, John Young is me, you know, like all those people are me. And, you know, even with, in, in, if in, in, and Tufelhund Sergeant Young is, is me, you know, like that's the, those sure. people are, are, are there, you know, those are, those are just pieces of me that, you know, I'm, I, 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 I definitely want to tell, you know, like unique and 
stories and stuff but but for some reason you know when whenever it comes to to like combat and violence all that is always going to stem from afghanistan you know it's always going to stem from those moments that i had where you know revelatory moments where i i i like i changed i I like instinctually changed my mind like my mind became something else right it it evolved in those like brief moments in combat you know whether it's you know, throwing a fucking tourniquet on somebody's leg after they hit an IED and now we're taking contact or we're in a, we're, we're, we are in an L-shaped ambush. We're taking contact from the front. There's some rocket teams to our left. And now we got to deal with that. And the guy in the gun is not fucking firing a gun because he pisses fucking pants. And now we got to handle that. And, you know, it's, you know, um, dudes getting fucking shot in the neck, you know, or, you know, just the, the visceral aspect of like the smell of iron or the smell of blood or the smell of like, you know, um, HME or the, or yeah, yeah, exactly. Or the smell of fucking, you know, five, five, six rounds and shit, like all of that and those memories and the way that, that my mind and body felt in those moments, all of that will never go away. And it will always come through in my books and in some form or fashion or my attitude and how I feel towards certain things or, my um the way like my ideals and my values are are always going to come through in those books and you know even if i am like creating stories and and telling stuff i I, it's still a piece of like it's still a sliver of like who i am and my actual soul of what of what i'm what i am you know so what do you what what do you find you're still trying to unpack the most? Is it capturing kind of small moments that you don't want to forget that you want to remember, have that sense memory? Is it an emotional state? Is it, is it the kind of a broader sense of like, you know, purpose? What do you think it is that you're still trying to unpack? Or do you know? I don't, honestly, I don't, I've never really, I've never asked that question and I've never thought about it. And I don't, I honestly wouldn't, I wouldn't know. I mean, when I first, when I first started writing poetry, I just needed to unpack, like, I think what happened, right? Like yeah. I needed to unpack, yeah. you know, the, the whole concept of being in the military and then going somewhere and voluntarily going somewhere where, you know, that, you know, there's a, like a 50, 50 flip of a coin that you're going to fucking die. Right. Or, you know, you're not going to come back as the same person you were. And that obviously that, that happened. Right. But, or, you know, you come back with no legs or a double amp, triple amp, single amp, whatever it is, you know, you just come back fucked up. And, you know, um, I think that when I did come back fucked up, that I didn't know how to handle that or how to make sense of it. Right. Because I, I actively told myself that I wasn't going to come back on my second appointment and I prepared not to come back on my second appointment. And there was numerous times in my second appointment where I tried not to come back. Right. Like I tried stupid shit where it didn't make a lot of fucking sense at the time. And it still doesn't make sense to me now, but you know, I, I did it because I, I, I don't know. I was reckless, I guess, you know, I had that type of mentality, like, well, it's not going to be somebody else. It's going to be me. You know, it's not going to be this other guy in my platoon because I'm not going to allow him to do that. I'm going to be the one to go and do it because I trust myself and I don't trust anybody else. And, if somebody's going to get fucking hit, it's going to be fucking me, you know? And that was that, that, that whole concept, like that external mindset, I guess of, or, or like, I don't, I don't really know, like, um, 
Yeah, man, it's like it's hard to to even try to gauge, yeah. right? It's hard yeah. to, to to understand. It's hard to you know, and, that, and that's why I write poetry because it's it's yeah. become a yeah. it's become that release. And you know, when you read Adahi, there's parts of Adahi where like he's enjoying the violence, like he's enjoying certain parts of of the violence, and you know that that I think is a lot of what I unpack. You know, is that yeah. why you know, like I enjoy violence, like I. I'm, I'm, I'm a violent person. Like, I mean, it's, it's not like I, I go around and look for violence, you know, and I go look right. to, to, to right. cause violence or I'm, I'm, I'm an aggressor or I, or I, or I'm there to disrupt people. But if I'm in an area and violence is occurring, I, I gravitate towards it. And I'm sure. like, okay, let's go to that. And let's go figure Let's go solve this problem. Right. So yeah. it's not like, I mean, even like being in fist fights and stuff, like, you know, that's why like jujitsu is fun because I like fighting. I like, I like, I like to fight. I like, I like combating. I like to, I want to get better at it. You know, I like to be on the ground. I want to wrestle. I want to fucking take people down. You know, I want to fist fight. I like that. It's fun. So it's like a, when I write books, it's, it's a way for me to physically release that, you know what I mean? Instead of having to go, you know, pay $1,200 a month to a jujitsu gym or to a kickboxing gym or whatever it is, you know, like I can just write. And I can be violent in my stories, like with Tufel Hunted. It's a fucking 69-page book where it's just yeah. violence. Yeah. It's literally yeah. just fucking violence. So it's like, I mean, yeah, there is a lot of dialogue within the first like half of the book because you kind of have to, there's like a lot of violence yeah, at that, the stage. Yeah. You, you, exactly. Kind of have to like build up to that. You know, like there we're, we haven't got to the field yet, but like, you know, it's all kind of calm until then. It's like the calm before the storm, right? So it's all foreplay. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You gotta, yeah. gotta have the foreplay. Gotta have the foreplay. Yeah. Gotta get it wet, dude. <laughs> That's fucking truth. Uh, so let's talk about um, your origin story then. So you're from Florida originally, right? Yeah. Yep. Born and raised in Palm Beach County. And who were you in high school? Were you oh, a sports guy? Were you Were you writing at all? No. Who were you? No. No. I was. Um. I was getting in fucking trouble, man, with the law. I was playing football. You know, I was. I was a. I was a free safety and wide receiver playing football. So I played free safety on defense. I played wide receiver on offense. I played ninth, tenth, eleventh grade, and then twelfth grade. I didn't play at all. Um, I, by like tenth, eleventh grade, I started surfing a lot. You know, started surfing, started smoking a lot of fucking weed. Um, started, and I. I was always a skateboarder. You know, I skateboarded mm-hmm. from when I was like ten. Always, mm-hmm. I, I still skate to this day. You know, so I, I skated a lot kind of like a surfer skate kind of bum, you know, gotten some fights here and there, whatever, you know, not, not, nothing like, you know, I was never like, a, I was never like a really like a, like an aggressive guy, like towards other people. I was always aggressive, uh, like with my dad and shit, because that like relationship didn't like start out like, well, you know, and now we have a good relationship. But when I was a teen, you know, it was very bad. Yeah. Like we, him and I got in physical like arguments and shit. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where high school was, was, was definitely unique, man. It was definitely, you know, I went to like four different elementary schools. I went to two different high schools. So I never had a set group of friends my whole life. Why? Like I never, why, why were you bouncing around? You know, um, I went to a, I went to a private school, a Christian private school um, from kindergarten to fourth grade. And they told my mom that I needed to be on like Ritalin and my mom was like, I'm not going to put my son on Ridlin. So she took me out of the school. She put me in another private uh, Christian school for the first half of fourth grade until winter. And they told her the same thing. They said, your son is fucking out of control. He needs to be put on fucking Ridlin. And my mom was like, 
he's a growing boy. I'm not going to put him on a fucking pill so right. he can calm down. Like you're an right. idiot. So she removed me from that school and she put me into a public school and I became a fucking safety patrol. I got straight A's and I oh. made a lot of good friends, dude. My mom was like, see, that's all you needed. Yeah. You just needed to be put somewhere where they understood you and they, they, they liked you. And I was like, all right. So I, you know, I did really well at the end of fourth grade and fifth grade. I went on my patrol trip to Washington DC as a patrol. You know, I, I enjoyed fifth grade. I made a lot of good friends in fifth grade that are still my friends to this day. You know, AJ Duva, I met in fifth grade and AJ Duva came to middle school with me because he was like, bro, if you're going to go to that middle school, I'll go to that middle school. So he like transferred because he was going to go to a different middle school. that was like near his house, but he was like, yo, you're my, you're like my fucking boy, bro. I'm going to go with you. So, you know, we went to a, we went to a middle school and then, you know, I started skating a lot and stuff like in middle school. And then I went to a high school because I was, my mom and I moved out of the house when I was like, 12 13 and we moved in with my stepdad because my mom got remarried um after like 12 years of dating this this guy you know she finally got married to him and then i went to one high school for like an air force rotc program huh okay. yeah and, and i i liked it like i liked the school or i liked the program but the school had like 4500 kids and it just like wasn't kind of over overwhelming fucking school and I was like a minority kind of like, um, you know, I got fucked with a lot for being you know, white, basically. Oh, um, gotcha. Yeah. So I was like, I don't know. Really where, where were you? Where in Florida was this? This Palm Beach County. Just uh, it just the, the, the school was uh, Lake Worth High School. Uh, but, you know, it was just one of those things where I just didn't I just didn't like yeah. it. Uh, you know, yeah. so I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the school like wherever my, my stepbrother was going to a different high school at the time. He's a year older than me. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go to a different. High, I'm going to go to the, the school with my stepbrother. So I went to a different high school called Forest Hill High School, and I and that's where I I, I graduated from. Or I actually technically like didn't like graduate. I just like dropped out and got my GED or whatever. But um, I was in high school, and then I left, and I went to Forest Hill for my tenth grade, eleventh grade, and twelfth grade, and then I joined the Army ROTC program at Forest Hill. But since I was like a shithead and not disciplined they like kind of kicked me out because i was always going to the dean's office and shit i was just a bad kid in high school man you know that's like what were that you time. doing what were you getting into trouble with just being disruptive in class man you okay. know fucking off you know telling the teachers to fuck off just yeah. being a, just being a dickhead dude you know what i mean just being sure. like very disruptive and just being an asshole to teachers for no reason you know because my own life was not like where i i thought it should be you know what i mean like where do you know, think my, it should be i don't know man like honestly i've never really i really never really thought about it you know i just my mom and dad weren't together you know my mom yeah. was remarried to my stepdad my dad was getting a divorce from my um from my stepmom you know like mm. um i don't know my grandma like got cancer like you know and it was like it was like a just like a bad like time yeah. you know what i mean i was yeah. doing a lot of drugs and shit i just wasn't making good decisions you know it just was it was just was bad you know and it just um you know, and right at right at twelfth grade, you know, right after twelfth grade, my best friend in high school, he went up to, uh, and not my best friend from elementary school. He went to a different high school. Um, he went to another high school, and I went to this one with, with my brother. But then I met my this this dude named Nimish, and if you've read Adahi, there's a character named Nimish in the book, and it's based off of my best friend Nimish. And you know, he passed away right out of high school. I mean, he went up to FSU to be a fucking lawyer and to get his bachelor's degree and then go to law school and shit and on his way home during his first semester in, in college he was on his way back during thanksgiving break and his car 
they've stopped on the side of the road and like the turnpike and his car got fucking plowed by a drunk semi driver. Fuck. Yeah, it totally Fuck. killed oh. killed him and his girlfriend, dude. Um yeah, just a fucking So you tragedy. had all that you had all this kind of law separation, all that shit going on right then. Yeah, it was all like within yeah. the, it was all I happening right then and yeah. there, man. Yeah. I mean, and my grandma passed away on Halloween 2007 and then Nimish passed away uh, 3 days before Christmas 2007. Gotcha. So it was gotcha. really like um it was really just just like a dark time for me, you know, and I just really didn't know what I want and I was already out of high school, you know. That was end of I was supposed yeah. to get out of high school like May of 07. I graduated 07. So, you know, I was already out of high school for like six months and all this shit was happening. And I was just like not making good decisions and shit, you know, doing a bunch of bad yeah. shit. I was, I was like homeless. My mom kicked me out of the house. My dad was like, you're not fucking living here, bro. So I was living out of my like 1992 Chevy Cavalier, um, taking showers at the beach and shit. Yeah, sure. So living at the beach. So um, as, as somebody that has done the exact same thing on the other coast, um it's funny you can't do that shit in the northeast you got to do it in someplace warm but um but yeah going and showering at the beach living out of your vehicle um i think and it's funny actually god you know what's really funny i didn't even think about that i was doing that in 2007 how fucking weird is that um so yeah homeless brothers homeless brothers across the fucking coast man Who, who fucking knew so What's weird is, um, I mean, there's a lot of things weird about living that kind of life. I don't think you ever really come back from that, though. I think it changes. I think that's one of those things that changes your view of the world and of yourself. Because yeah. you, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm saying, I'll, I'll throw this out. This is what my experience was, and I don't know if you can relate. But for me, it was like there was a little separation between me and the rest of the world where I was like, I'd see the people go into their homes at night. And I'd see the lights come on. I could sometimes see or at least hear the TVs turn on. And I'd just be sitting in my driver's seat. And I'd just go, well, I guess my day's done. And just kick the seat back and lay back. And I'm like, that's it. And and I I felt feral. I felt like a wolf. I felt like I'm just primed, ready for something. Um, everybody else has these gaps, these buffers where they get to go relax and chill and do things. I was like... I don't, I'm ready for anything. Uh, you know, I was working, I was writing, I was working in a prison and then I enlisted out of there. Um, but I felt just, I felt just feral. Was that the same thing for you? Did you have kind of, can you relate to what I'm saying? Or was that kind of more of a me thing? No, I think that, I think you, you know, you, you said it really well, right. Is that you do feel kind of like a little feral beast, right? Like kind of living around and not really having, you know, you, it's kind of like a like a raccoon, right? Like they don't have a fucking home, you know what I mean? They just kind of go and they they eat yeah. wherever they can and they sleep wherever they can and they move around in the darkness and you know that's kind of like what what I did at least, you know, I yeah. I wor- I worked delivering pizzas, you know, full time, which uh, was a shitty fucking job. I hated it, but you know, I was, you know, 18, 19, so or 18 years old and you know, I, I worked delivering pizzas during the day and at night and then when I would get done, I would, you know, buy a bunch of drugs and fucking go get my fucking car and go get fucking lit. I mean, not like, you know, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I wouldn't do like heroin, but like, you know, no, like, I got you. Yeah. It's, it's South Florida. So I, you can only imagine that, you know, um, you know, so it was, it was, it was one of those, you know, things that I don't know, man, I, I definitely felt like a little animal, like a little Wolverine, yeah, just like living yeah. out of my car. I mean, even when it rained, my car yeah. would leak. 
So like it would, huh. it would, it would, my car would like it when it, when it rained, my car would flood and shit. I had to drill holes in my floorboard for it to leak Fuck. water. Oh, that's yeah. crazy. Wow. I, I had a zip tie on my throttle cable in my truck and <laughs> in, in, in my car. I also had a dog, dude. I was also living with a dog. Oh shit. Okay. That, yeah, that's tough. That's tough yeah. to take care of anything in that yeah. state. Wow. So I was living with a dog and I, and I, and I got him from the animal rescue shelter. I had him for about a year and his name was tech nine and he was fucking cool. He's like a little bulldog mix. And then something happened where I put him at my step. My stepdad has two houses and I put him at my stepdad's second house just because like nobody was there. You know what I mean? And yeah. I was like, I was like, I can keep this dog here. Well, the one night I didn't put him in back in his kennel, he like barked all night. And I guess like I came back the next morning or whatever from like, I don't know, like out like with friends or whatever. And I came back next morning and fucker he was gone dude like the animal care and control came because i guess the neighbors called the fucking police that the dog was barking and then the animal oh, care shit. and control came and got him so uh, I, I never i never saw him after that and you know oh, it dude. definitely made me like reevaluate fuck you up yeah yeah it made me reevaluate everything with my life and it made me reevaluate like what the fuck i was doing and you know i i i um i got a job with my cousin working at the airport cleaning private planes and we, we worked there for about a month or two months. And I was starting to get like back on track. You know, I stopped doing shit. I, I was only like smoking bud and, you know, only smoking a little bit of weed here and there and not really drinking, not really doing anything else, you know, trying to get like get my life back on track, you know, and whatever track that looked like. Right. And yeah. And um, yeah, my mom and my stepdad fucking despise me because of the dog thing. And you know, my dad despised me because I was smoking fucking weed and shit and sure. just being a reckless asshole. And um, yeah, man, one night or one day, George Bush was a president. It was early 2008, like January or something, maybe maybe even like December 2007. Okay. But it was like January, December and George Bush was coming to Palm Beach County and um, he landed his helicopter HMX one inside the airplane hangar that we were working at. And basically me and my cousin were like smoking a cigarette out and I don't smoke cigarettes at all, but I mean, I did that when I was a, a youth and, um, lucky strikes, no filter. Uh, and, um, <laughs> and we would, uh, we were sitting there smoking cigarettes and the power went out in our fucking hangar. And I saw the security force detail Marines that were, you know, uh, in charge of, you know, protecting the president's helicopter or whatever they all like snapped into motion and they all like went to like condition one and they're all like walking at the ready like walking around the hangar and shit and i me and my cousin were just like damn dude that was fucking cool like, that was, <laughs> dude, that was yeah. pretty fucking cool like they literally the moment the power went out they dropped nods and they had their rifles up and they were fucking they were patrolling inside that hangar looking for whoever the fuck just cut off the power. You know what I'm saying? Cause they were going to shoot that fucker in the face. And I was like, damn, that's really cool, man. And my, I was like, dude, what about joining like the military? You know, what if we did that? And my cousin was like, well, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to go join the fucking Marines, bro. Like I want to go fuck some shit up. Like if these dudes are out there doing that, that's how they act. Yeah. They're just like a security detail for the president. I can only imagine what like a regular ground pounder fucking Marine is going to be doing. Like, I want to go do that. And he was like, I want to go join the fucking Navy. And I was like, no dude please not and he was like oh you know his other cousin was in the navy and shit and i was like no yeah. dude so he went to the navy recruiter navy recruiter was like trying to get my cousin to join and then i was like all right bro since i went with you the navy recruiter you got to go with me to the, to the marine corps recruiter and we went to the marine corps recruiter 
I I signed my, you know, I signed like, you know, my um, like commitment to be like, I will, I do want to join the Marine Corps, you know, whatever that commitment thing is, whatever. And the drill and the, uh, the recruiter was making fun of my cousin so hard about trying to get into the Navy that my cousin was like, well, fuck, I guess I got to go to the fucking Marine Corps. (laughs) So me and my cousin went on fucking peer pressured in. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah, So me and my cousin went on the buddy system. Uh, We left on mother's day, 2008. We left on mother's day, bro. That's fucking the rest is history. man. Like, Holy shit. Was that the first ambition you had had? Then was that the first time you were like, Hey, this is the first thing I've potentially wanted to do as a yeah. career as a real job. Yep. I mean, I, I never, cause where I was at in my life, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't, I had no path. I had no purpose. I had no, which I had no, which way to go when, in my life. I was just like, you know, doing dumb shit, obviously young enough to where I could recover from, you know, if you did that shit when yeah. you're 25, you can't recover from it. But when you do it, when you're 17, 18, you can get away with it, you know? Sure. Um, sure. So I did that stupid shit and I just had no idea. And I always knew, that was going to go to the military. You know what I mean? You know, when nine 11 happened in seventh grade, I, I rode my bike home that day and I watched CNN just like everybody else for the remainder of the day. And, you know, I, I told myself, you know, if this is still going on when I'm able, I'm going to join the military and hmm. I'm going to go do, I'm going to go, you know, do my fucking part because that's what, you know, my grandpa and his brothers, no, you know, not my, I mean, my one grandpa wasn't world war two, but he was in Alaska waiting for the Russians to come over. Uh, so he didn't, he didn't yeah. do anything. And my other grandpa was like five years old when World War II was happening. So he was, you know, he couldn't, he was not able to join, but like his two brothers, you know, one of them was a, was a, um, an army medic on D-Day. And the other one was a tank driver who was in the Italy campaign and then went over and he was in France and he pushed over into Germany. And then once the European theater was over, they sent his ass to Okinawa and he was a tank driver in, in Okinawa. So uh, my one, so my one grandpa's brother did a lot of like badass fucking shit. You know what I mean? And uh, I always looked to them my whole life as like, these are, these guys are fucking heroes, you know, like, yeah. And Cause guys- you, you'd done all that JROTC stuff and everything. I mean, you did keep gravitating towards something in the military, right? Right. And I mean, that was always, I, I mean, and you can ask my mom, you know, my mom would always be like, yeah, you know, he'd always be out and, you know, out in the backyard playing with like little plastic guns, playing like sure. war, you know, playing like sure. army man or whatever it was, you know? And it's, this is what I did, you know, and that's what I gravitate towards. And that's, you know, it's, I always knew that I, I wanted to do that at some point. Right. I just, yeah. I kind of was pushing it off because I was having fun. You know, when I, you know, when I first turned 18, I had like a hot girlfriend. I had a bunch of friends. I was like chilling. Mm. I wasn't, you know, I was just yeah. doing shit, you know, I just, yeah. I was enjoying my life. Right. And then I didn't graduate high school. And that was like the first, like, fuck you and then my mom kicked me out of the house and i was like the second fuck you and then my dad was like well you're not living here and i was like the third fuck you and then my grandma died and then my best friend died and it was like multiple things were happening in like a six-month period where i was like all right what the fuck is going on you know and and then i find myself taking showers at the fucking beach and then my dog gets taken and then all this shit happens and i'm like you know what dude like I need to do something that's bigger than me. I need to do something that's much bigger than me. So I so it can take me out of here and it can, it can make me into a better person. And how did it feel going to basic, going to boot camp? How did, did you feel good? Did you feel like you were home? Did you feel like I love it? I, yeah. I love yeah. it. I, I, I genuinely like, I, I look forward to it. I didn't, I was, you know, I was scared because I didn't know what to expect, you know, but sure. But was, you know, it, was it nice to get fucking three meals a day? Yeah, honestly, yeah. yeah. It's I, like, <laughs> you want to know what's crazy is I yeah. went into boot camp 150 pounds, yeah. soaking fucking wet, a thin little guy. I left boot camp 160 pounds. 
Yeah. I gained 10 fucking pounds because I was getting three meals a day. Yeah. Yeah. And I was working out. I dropped 30 pounds in wow. basic, but I had been eating, but it's weird. I had been eating. I had, I was literally living out of the change compartment in my truck. And so I'd eat, I'd go to Carl's Jr., which anybody that's from California knows it's Hardee's, I think, everywhere else in the country. But yeah. in California, it was Carl's Jr. And I go to Carl's Jr. and I get one, I think it was called a Star Burger. And I get one of those a day. And that would be my only meal. So I'd piece that up and it'd be 99 cents a day. I could get that. And that's all I'd eat. And for some reason, that like, I'd, I'd swim in my buddy's pool. That was like my only workout. And it wasn't much of one. But it just, but for some reason, my, my weight went up to like 185 and then getting in the military and suddenly somebody going, Hey, you're going to breakfast at whatever the fuck time it was, right? Zero six or whatever. And I was like, and suddenly my stomach started to come down, like everything. And I was like, Holy shit. And I dropped down to 155 by the time I graduated. Um, I was like, Shit, this three meals a day thing, sleeping on a regular bed, yeah. it's like cheating, man. Shit, what can't you do when you're doing that like this? Exactly. Um, anyway, sorry, it just it, take me down memory lane. I haven't thought about that in a while. Um, but yeah, it's uh, so you felt comfortable with the Marine Corps life. It was like you're, and did you want to deploy? Were you like teeth on edge? Like that's all I go? wanted to do. That's yeah. a, that's that's yeah. all I want to do. I want is like, listen, it's the middle of 2008. I remember our drill instructor saying. If you're lucky, you're going to go to Iraq. But other than that, you're not going to see shit. So I was like, all right, well, fuck, you know, and then, you know, you get through basic and then, you know, whatever happens, Obama becomes president at the end of 08 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I get to the fleet in like November of 08. And then it's like January of 09. And Obama's like, we're sending 30,000 troops to Afghanistan. And I was like, well, hell yeah, dude. Let's fucking yeah, go. Yeah. I was super excited. I mean, I was really excited, to be honest with you. And then um, somebody from our battalion was killed in Afghanistan. And I was like, but you, before you got there, before I did, this okay. was like right when we found out that Obama was going to become president and send troops over there. Right. It was like December, or January that this, that um, Lance Corporal Stroud got shot and he was killed. And we're like, what the fuck, dude? And then. They're like, well, we're sending a company of engineers to attach to these infantry guys, and they're going to go to Nauzat, um in Afghanistan or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right. But I didn't. I wasn't part of that because I broke my shoulder early on in the Marine Corps. Like, I, I broke it playing fucking Frisbee for some reason. I mean, I know what the reason was. It was a six-foot-four fucking gunnery sergeant tackled me in midair and threw my fucking body on the ground and broke my fucking shoulder. So that fucking sucked. And everybody oh, was like... Close. Everybody's like, clean out your fucking vagina, bro. But I was like, listen, <laughs> I broke my collarbone three different times throughout my life. I've broken my leg and I've broken my hands and my, my toes. So I know what the feeling feels like when you break a bone. It's like this burning, searing sensation. I know that feeling and it's happening right now. So my shoulder is broken. I need to go to the hospital. They're like, ah, whatever. But it was broken. I had to get surgery and shit. But yeah, I mean, I felt very welcomed in the Marine Corps. I mean, basically, like when I... I went to boot camp. I was, I became a squad leader in boot camp, And then, cause they were like, Oh, this guy's really badass, you know, whatever. Uh, I really tried, you know, I, cause again, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I seized the, like that moment of like, this is my time. This is my moment. I need to be the best version of me. And I did, you know, that's, I'm not, a, I'm not, you know, I'm not the type to like, you know, kind of fret away from like that sort of like life challenging sort of things. Right. So I was like, I'll do that. Cause I, I know I need to become a better person. So, but, Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Going to boot camp and doing that was like, 
it made me, you know, better. And, and the drill instructor saw that. Right. And even when I got my Eagle, Eagle Globe and anchor in our ceremony at the end, my drill instructor, I'm the only person he talked to. And the whole time when he gave everybody the Eagle Globe and anchors, mm. he was like, mm. he's like, egg and I'm, he's like, I'm happy that you're in my Marine Corps. He's like, you're a good Marine. And I'm happy that you're here basically. And I was like, they like almost made me cry, man, because, you know, he was such a douchebag the entire fucking time and everybody fucking hated him. And even the yeah. other drill instructors didn't like him. And he was a fucking cocksucker. And he he like respected me, you know, for yeah. for for like me and how I did during boot camp and how much I put out and how much I like wanted to be there and showcase that I wanted to be there and enjoyed being there. And I pushed myself harder than I feel like a lot of other people. And he, you know. I, I want to say that he recognized that shit because again, he like said that he was happy that I was in yeah. his Marine Corps and that I was a good Marine. And I was like, well, fuck dude, that makes me feel really good and special because you know, he didn't say anything like that to anybody else. So who, who came to your graduation? Did anybody? Yeah. My mom, my dad, my stepdad, um, Nimish's parents, Nimish's mom and dad came to my wow. graduation. Yeah, they came. Um, and my, uh, my, my best friend, Johnny Freed, he came to my graduation as well. Did they see a change in you? Do you think, did you think there was a change in you after boot camp? Yeah. I mean, I was much more serious, much more, I think, stoic, you know, much more understanding of, of, of the nuances of life and much more respecting of, you know, people that actually showcase love towards me. You know, mm. um, I was much more appreciative of my parents and, you know, what they've had to do to, you know, raise me as an individual and raise me as, you know, being divorced and being separated. I, dude, I just, I literally came away from boot camp uh, a, a distinctly different individual. I mean, distinctly different on, on multiple levels. I mean, physically, I was fucking shredded. I mean, and I mean, I'm, I'm a skinny fucking guy. So it's not like it's hard for me to like just drink water and eat fucking chicken right. every day. But like, right. you know, I was fucking, I could go run three miles in 18, 19 minutes. I was fucking shredded. I was in good shape. You know, I was like, I stood with my chest out, you know, I didn't look at the ground. I looked up, you know, when I walked, I didn't look at things. I just fucking walked my head high. You know, I, I, my shoulders back, you know, back straight, you know, I, I, I felt fucking good. I felt like I had a sense of purpose and I felt like, you know, what I feel like you're supposed to feel like when you graduate from Marine Corps boot camp, <laughs> you're supposed to feel like you're part of the fucking system now, right? You're, you, you're a fucking Marine. You're no longer Justin Egan guy that was born and raised in Palm Beach County. You're Justin Egan, the Marine who was born on Paris Island on August 8th, 2008. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's, that's who you are now. And that's who you're going to be for the rest of your fucking life. Like, yeah. Yeah. The person right. who got here was Justin born and raised Palm Beach County, but that motherfucker died on day two. We killed him. We fucking strangled him in his fucking sleep. And we said, you're fucking pathetic. We're done with you. We're not <clears throat> this person. You know, what did it mean to you to finally push into Afghanistan and get there? So to me, it was a big deal. I mean, it, to me, because I broke my shoulder early on in Marine Corps. So a lot of my friends got to leave and go to Afghanistan and, yeah. and it, it made me feel like left out. And I, and I felt, uh, you know, I had a roommate um, that went to Afghanistan as a combat placement and was killed. Um, my roommate, Anthony Williams, Corporal Anthony Williams, who was killed. Uh, I believe March 19th, 2009 uh, or March 22nd, 2009. Uh, but he was, he died in March, 2009. And he was my roommate uh, for about three or four months. He came from Okinawa and me and him became really good friends. And he went over there and after about two and a half weeks, he got fucking killed. And 
you know, it made me feel like, fuck, dude, that could have been me. Like I could have been there doing that. And he wouldn't, right. maybe he would have been fucking killed, you know, whatever the case was. And then the whole unit left the day that I got surgery, which was like October 22nd, 2009, I got surgery and the whole battalion left. Wow. And then I healed up pretty fast and I convinced my doctor to sign a waiver to like, let me go because I guess my battalion lost about 13, 14 guys over the course of like the three months they were there and they needed combat replacements. And they were there three months. Yeah. Like three and a half months. Fuck. Yeah. 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 Wow. Basically, was that, was that normal then? I didn't realize the rotations were that short. At well, that point. it was seven month rotations, right? So they like they would have first first division go out and for seven months, and then second division for seven months, and third division for seven months, and then so honestly, like I felt like I was always needing to go to Afghanistan, but I never could get there because my broken shoulder. Sure. Yeah. And it was a whole like you know my first basically. My first year and a half in the Marine Corps was basically like watching everybody else go to Afghanistan while I couldn't do anything because my shoulder. And I felt again, that was like a double like insult yeah. to injury, you know, yeah. I was like, fuck, totally. dude. like, and on top of that, the doctor was like, we're going to medically separate you. And I was like, fuck, no, you're not, dude. Like, that's not going to happen. I will not be medically separate. He goes, well, um, something, something. I go, bro, listen to me right now. I was like, I don't care what you have to do. Like what, ha- whatever happens. I literally, I literally, he called me. I, I sped over to the to the naval hospital on Camp Lejeune and I walked into his office like a fucking madman, dude. I banged the fucking door open. I was like, bro. He was like, bro. And I was like, yeah, what the fuck? Like he and he was, you know, he's like a fucking Navy fucking surgeon, dude. Yeah. But he he gave me surgery and him and I were, you know, fairly close, you know, fairly good relationship. And I was pissed off, you know. And you know, I, I was a little bit disrespectful, but you know, I, I I was heated, dude. And I felt like, you know, you're fucking me over, dude. Like. I need to go like you need to yeah. you need to yeah. say, OK, and you need to let me fucking go. And you need to you need to stop trying to hold me the fuck back because, you know, I have a job to go do and I need to go do it. And, yeah. you know, I, I somehow I convinced a guy and he was like, fucking he signed off on my waiver and I got surgery October 22nd and I was on my way to Afghanistan at like the end of January. You know, so it was wow. like October, November, wow. December, I healed up and like January. I was like preparing to leave and I got to Afghanistan like the first week of February, I think something like that. And then they sent me to second rock clearance platoon. And then, you know, we were, we did the Marja thing, the Marja, you know, whatever that was in February, March. And then we left in at the end of April, I think. So I was only there from like the end of January, all February, all of March. And then we left at the end of April. So I was only there for like four months, dude. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then we came home and then we waited another 14 months. And then we went in April I guess it was 12 months because we left in April. We left um, for Afghanistan for Sangin in 2011. We left and we left like April 10th or April 12th. And we got back on Halloween that year. So we were there basically the whole entire year. And that was basically like the fucking Wild West. I mean, that that deployment was fucking shitty. And that, that whole thing was just just shit. Why? Because everything had heated up and you're right in the middle of it and or because just in relation to the first deployment. No, like the first deployment was relatively kind of chill. I mean, we never really got I mean, I never got any ticks or any gunfights on my first deployment. It was very mm-hmm. much like um, IED centered the kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And by the time I got there, everything kind of died down with Marja. Okay. Um, but on my second deployment, it was very much like the Taliban. I guess what happened was the Taliban hired a bunch of like Pakistani warfighters to come in and like fight us 
because they kind of got like their asses handed to them by three five in the mm. in like the spring and fall time of 2010 to in the spring of 2011. But then when we got there, it was becoming the summertime, and I guess they hired a bunch of like Pakistanis. And when they came down to fight us, you know, they 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 legitimately came down to try to fight us. You know, they they had like rocket teams and shit. I mean, it was again, you know, with the rocket teams. I mean, I remember looking down an alley and seeing a dude running with two RPGs that were loaded on either one of his shoulders, and he was running. And then there was a guy, there was two guys behind him carrying extra warheads for the RPGs, huh. like following him to get to the position they needed to get to, to fire the fucking RPGs. And I mean, they, they definitely fired them and they, they hit the EOD truck, but you know, it didn't kill anybody because they hit a tree before it hit the EOD truck. But, um, you no, know, that's like, a no shit moment. That, that's yeah, a real exactly. You're just, you're, yeah. And they were less than like a hundred yards away. And you're just like, yeah. did you guys see that? You know, like what the fuck? Like did yeah. nobody see that? You know, like, so, it, and there was a, you know, it was one of those deployments where that's, I think, where a lot of my, like, combat and my, um, like, anxiety, like, comes from, you know. It's because that deployment, we found, like, 79 IEDs. Yeah. And we got ambushed probably four or five times. Um, we got in gunfights pretty, you know, probably once a week, you know, we get some pot shots here and there and, you know, somebody in the back would see it. So we would be like, all right, where are they at? And he would let us know. And we would just like all unload on that. And then, or, you know, we'd be out sweeping and somebody 800 yards away is trying to hit us with a fucking AK and they're not, you know, because they're right. fucking 800, 900 yards away. So then the 50 cal gets them, you know, just moment or, you know, you're sweeping and you actually step on a fucking IED and it like, it doesn't go off, but the pressure plate breaks and you're like, what the f- fuck dude like did that happen to you was that yeah. a thing yeah. yeah yeah that's something i bet you'd never fucking forget jesus no. christ yeah. what at what moment did you cut your deal with whatever yourself god the universe and just be willing to um leave if you need to and go yep all right i'm i'm ready to do or die and it's i I'm think i place now I think I falsely convinced myself of it on my, before my first appointment, like mm. while I was, while I was mm-hmm. like healing up, you know, I falsely like got there. Yeah. But I think that it took having to go to Afghanistan at least one time and having to see and smell and like live in that environment for an extended period of time to like really enable my mind to get to the place of like, all right, you're going to die. It's going to happen. Is it going to be in Afghanistan? <laughs> yes. Okay. What does that look like? It's probably going to look like you bent over an IED, or it's going to look like you stepping on an IED, or it's going to look like you stepping on an IED, losing your fucking legs, and then you lose your blood on the bird on the way out. Or it's going to be you getting shot in the fucking face. Either way, and if any of those scenarios happens, it's going to be fine because. You're probably not going to be feeling a lot because right. you're going to be morphine the fuck out or your body's going to go fucking numb because it's in such a state of fucking shock that, you know, your mind just kind of drifts into a fucking sleep and you fucking die, you know, right. or you get shot in the face. You don't feel it and you die or you step on an IED. You don't feel it and you die um, or your fucking truck rolls over and you get fucking paralyzed and then you can't feel anything anyway or you know, whatever the fucking case is, you know, you, you get a piece of shrapnel on your fucking neck, you start losing blood from your neck and, you know, that, the, and you know what it feels like when you, when you give blood, you know what I mean? You just like <laughs> kind of start going cold and you kind of faint away. 
that's probably what's going to happen if you, you start losing fucking blood a lot and you, and you die. You're just going to kind of faint out and you're probably going to fucking die. And, you know, I, I think that going the first time, I think that coming back and then having some Marines from 3-5 go, this is where you're going, you're going to die. And they were not like, you know, they were not unfiltered with about it. They were like, no, they're no, they're not filtered. I mean, they were unfiltered. They were just like, listen, it's fucking bad. We saw General Kelly's son get fucking killed. Yeah. You're going to fucking die. That's a general's son. You're yeah. going to die. And I yeah. was like, all right, well, fuck. I mean, if they kill a general son, they're probably definitely going to kill me. You know what I mean? Like, no, right. no doubt, you know? Right. And it's one of those times, man, where I think that, you know, I, I think I, I know early on in my life, I was, um, you know, because I went to like those religious, like private schools early on. I kind of came to terms with death early on. My uncle Byron, the guy who was a tank driver in World War II, he died in like 1997. I remember that death vividly. And I remember being like, well, if I die, you know, my dad and, you know, the church was always like, well, if you die, you, you, you're you going to go to fucking hell or whatever. You're going to go to heaven or whatever. So I like, I remember being like seven, laying in my bunk bed at my dad's house, like crying and bawling my eyes out for like all night until I passed out, basically like begging like God to like, let me into his fucking heart or whatever the case is, whatever you, whatever you're supposed to do to like, you know, right. to be like, to go to heaven or whatever. I remember just be, being in such fear of that. And then as I've gotten older, I've started to, I've definitely steered away from religion very hard as I've gotten older. And I think that my early on youth of being exposed to it and being pushed on it, you know, uh, hardly, you know, very hard from like relatives has like, turn me off to the idea but when i was going to afghanistan you know you you definitely you reach out to the maker or a maker or the maker whoever the fuck that you believe is you know the the end all be all of the creation of you know biological life and sentient life within our universe right so you you understand whoever that is so like you know there was a time where I definitely had come to terms, had to, you know, come to terms with whatever that entity is, you know, and it may be God, it may be Buddha, it may be fucking, you know, whatever the fuck else there is out there, you know, what did the the flying spaghetti monster for all I know, right? Like, so I don't know what it is. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not an all seeing, all knowing person, but I do believe that, you know, that it, it may not be a bearded white guy named Jesus that came to our earth. You know what I'm saying? Sure. But it, it, there's definitely a reason behind the madness to why, you know, there's sentient life and, you know, we have what we have on this earth. Right. And I definitely reached into the cosmos of, you know, my brain that is tethered to like the cosmos of the universe. And I tapped into whoever it is. And I said, listen, man, or woman or it, or thing, or they, whatever it is, like, listen, if I fucking die, are you going to take care of me? Like, am I going to be all right? You know, like, if is my spirit, is my soul going to be fine? You know, if like, if I fucking die here, am I going to be okay? Am I, is my wife, you know, my ex, she's my ex-wife now, but like, is my, my wife at the time, is she going to be okay? Is my mom going to be okay? You know, are they going to be able to continue living like without me? And are, are they going to be able to like, keep, you know, whatever spirit I was like alive in their minds, you know? And I always think about, I think Einstein said it. I don't know. I, I could be wrong, but, you know, we die twice, you know, we die once when our physical body leaves this earth. And then we die the very last time that our name is spoken on this earth. Mm. 
And I, I like the, I, I, I've always thought of that. Right. And that's always stuck with me. And. Well, that's kind of the flip side of the, of the, you're born twice. You're born when you're physically born. And then the second birth is when you realize that you're going to die and right. death is a real possibility. Yeah. Um, are you, I can't think of a better way to say this and I wish I could. How do you feel about death now? I mean, I welcome death, man. Honestly, I think death is a, is an evolutionary process for all human beings and all, you know, life period. Like we, we need death to happen. Right. It's just, you know, if I die now, like if I died after we got off this phone call and I walked away and my heart just was like, and just gave out and I fell to the fucking floor, you know, I, I, would I be would I be like pissed off that I didn't get to like see certain things of my son's life or I didn't get to see, you know, what he was going to do with his life um, or like what my mom is going to do with the rest of her life or my dad or my brother or my, or my sister or their kids, you know, and stuff like that. Like that would definitely bother me. But do I think that I've used my time to the most of its ability? I mean, you know, I, I think so. I mean, there's times where I definitely feel like I could be doing better with, you know, giving my son more attention and not, you know, attending to like my writings or like school or, or doing work. podcasts on Sundays. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, this is, this is all good. No, I get you. I get you. Yeah. But, no. You know, there's just, I, I think that I would, I think I would be fine with it. You know, I would be fine with death. I, I mean, I think I've established myself in such a way now that, if I died that, you know, people could revisit, you know, my soul and they could revisit who I am because I've written, you know, some poetry that, you know, is my soul and it is who I am. And I've written some stories that, you know, is my po is my soul and it is who I am. So I think that, you know, people, if I died, there would be enough of me that, you know, my son wouldn't feel alone. Obviously he would feel mm -hmm. alone in a way that I'm not physically there for him to rear him and to, to teach him, you know, things, but, you know, I've written uh, so many things down that I could still teach him from being dead. You know, I could still sure. teach him if I was not here, you know, like there's sure. lessons in Adahi, there's lessons in Tufelhund and there's lessons in the poetry and there's lessons in things that I've just talked to other people about, you know, and, I would hope that, and my biggest thing is always my son, you know, is that, you know, if I died, would he be, would he be given and afforded the opportunities that would be afforded if I was still here? And that's always my biggest thought, right? And that's always what I think about, you know, like, am I going to get, you know, like, am I going to get like prostate cancer at the age of 36 and he's going to be 10, you know, or am I going to get, you know, if, you know, anything, you know, so I yeah. try to. I try to do the best by him that I can on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, I try to do the best by me on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, but it's, I mean, death is one of those things, man. Like I don't, it sucks when people die, you know, and it, and then as I've gotten older, it's not like a, I think I forgot. I just saw it recently and somebody said it the best, you know, it's not, nothing really is exciting at this point. It's more or less just like managing loss. It's like, how yeah. well do you yeah. handle managing loss? Because mm. nothing new is going to come anytime soon, unless my kid, you know, he's going to be, he's going to get older and he'll hopefully have kids and then I'll have grandkids to look forward to. Right. Like, that'll be great. 
But like, that's something new that'll maybe be here in 20 years, 25 years, 30 years. But until then, it's really managing loss. And I mean, like suicide, right? Like people die, you know, or just natural causes, right? Like my uncle committed suicide like a month and a half ago, two months ago. So it's like managing loss, right? It's managing like, well, fuck, you know, I just, I just asked him a question like four months ago and he talked to me and now two months later, he's fucking killed himself, you know, or same thing with like, I don't know if you knew Daniel Brown, you know, um, Navy corpsman worked with Marsock and stuff. He wrote poetry. He was in, you know, the veteran writing community. He, okay. he purchased some of my books, you know, him and I talked about poetry and stuff like that, you know, and, and he passed away. I don't know how, you know, I don't know how it happened, but I mean, he passed away. It's death, you know, yeah. he's still, he, yeah. he's gone, you know, and it's just one of those things where, you know, he was a light for people and he was a good person. He was a great person. You know, he did said great things and had a great, had a great voice and had um, great outlook on things, you know, and it's just, it's just, at this point, you know, it's, you don't want to succumb to that. You know, you don't want to succumb to to that, to that feeling and, and, and join them. You know, you want to do right by them, by keeping their, their ideals and their values and their spirit alive by you staying alive and by you pushing that, you know, by you now, kind of transferring their energy energy into your own energy and making yourself a unique individual that kind of can be you know um like a beacon maybe and but also writing but also like it strikes me that one of the things that i keep hearing though is that you have writing you have a legacy that's out there that nobody can and nobody can take that away right and there's something and there's a degree of permanence there's a degree of immortality i think that you have because your work has seen the light of day and has gotten reception and people know where to find it. And I, and so I'm speculating, I'll ask you the question. Would you feel differently about death? If you exactly the same person, same feelings, same emotions, but you hadn't put any of it in writing yet. Probably would not. You, no. Would you be anxious and like going, shit, I got something to get off my chest. and I don't know yeah. how to yet. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's, yeah. and that's kind of how I felt before I started writing my books and listen, and, I, and I'll admit this because I, I, I rarely ever admit this to anybody, but, you know, it, it pertains to the conversation that we're having. Um, and I guess it's kind of hard to admit, but I fear for my life almost every day. I mean, and it's not, you know, a, am I going to get in a car accident kind of thing? No, it's like a, like, I fear that, you know, like death is going to come for me at some point in, in, in the future, in the near future, in, in the next five to like 10 years, for sure. The next three to five years, for sure. I feel that. And I've always felt that for some reason. And I felt like that's always been my path since I've been a youth. And then, and as weird as that is, I've made it to 33 and I feel like that's not even old, you know? Um, right. I feel like you know, I might not make it to 40. And I didn't feel like I'd ever make it to 18, to be honest with you. And then when I got to that age and I got to the military, I never thought I'd make it to 24. And then when I got out of the military and I was 24, I never really thought I'd make it to 27 or 28, you know, and then I made it to 27, 28. And, you know, now I'm 33 and I have a son, you know, and it's, and, it, and, it, and it's harder to think like that. And it's harder to, to agree with that mindset, because I, I don't want, I don't want that to happen. You know, I don't, I don't want to to leave here in five years. I don't want to leave here in 10 years because I want to be with my son, but there's something there, man. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's, 
you know, like the, like the remnants of like, you know, that mindset of Afghanistan of like, you know, this next step could be your last, but it's there and it doesn't leave. And I really, I fear for my life. I fear I'm going to get cancer. I feel I'm, I fear I'm going to get fucking leukemia. I fear, you know, I mean, I don't fear of like a physical accident. I just fear that like, it's going to be a quiet fucking something that just comes when I go to the doctor one day and they're just yeah. going to be like, dude, you got fucking six months to live. How have you not noticed this? And I'm going to be like, I don't know. I'm sorry. You know, they're like, don't fucking say sorry to me. Go say sorry to your family, you know? And it's going to be like, well, fuck, what the fuck, you know? And that's, that's what I fear. I really, I truly fear that, you know, I don't fear world wars or fucking nuclear. I fear, you know, one day I'm going to be taken from here and I'm not going to be able to experience my son's life with my son. I fear, that my son is going to have a fucking memory of me from his youth. And that's going to be what he holds on to for the rest of his fucking life. And it makes me sad that that's how my mind works. And it makes me want to preserve myself. Yeah. And that's why I started writing because I wanted to preserve myself. I wanted to, if I do die, like you said, there's, the words don't die. The books don't die. You know, your physical body might not be here, but your words and your thoughts and how you felt will still be here. You know, people will still be able to have access to that. And that's why I write. And that's why I create shit. And that's why I do things because I do feel that my time is limited. And if, if my time goes to 89, 90 and I, and I live all that way, it's still limited. You know what I mean? Right. right. But it just was extended a little bit further than what I imagined myself extending to. But, you know, hopefully I do make it that far. That's what I, I, I want to make it that far, you know. But the, again, there's these intrusive thoughts of you're not going to make it that far, dude. So you need to preserve yourself in a way that hopefully you'll be able to still be here when you leave. Do you think that's based? And I hear what you're saying. And, and it's, I, I um, yeah, what you're saying means a lot. And I, I wonder if there's, if some of that is just the residue of living a life with chance, going through a combat deployment, going there's, that life is arbitrary. The sustainment of life is arbitrary and it's out of your hands and there's something else that's going to move, you know, it, it, your time is going to come and there's nothing you can do about it. And it's all arbitrary. And um, when you kind of have resigned yourself to that for a brief, intense period of time in a combat deployment, that sticks with you. That makes it a permanent imprint on your mind. Yeah. You can't shake. I don't know. I'm speculating here. No, I that honestly, God, that, that, that is like, I think that's it. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's genuinely it because. Yeah, man. I mean, I just was expecting to die and it just didn't happen. Right. So now I'm just always expecting to fucking die no matter whatever that is. It's just, and it, it is like a, re a resonating thing that this has not gone away. And I don't know if it'll ever go away. You know, it's because now I'm 33 and I left Afghanistan when I was fucking 22. Yeah. You know, so there's definitely got to be a reprinting of the mental image and of, and of the self talk, I think. Yeah. I doubt, and I, I'm, I'm sounding like Dr. Phil, but I think I'm saying this for myself as much as much for you, if anybody else, but I think there's, I think, I think if you can talk yourself into a negative, you can talk yourself into a positive. And I think re rewiring the brain, I think that is crucial. And I do think I, I absolutely think the writing 
is life-saving. And it's why I think it's so important. I want to ask you about your nonprofit because I feel like that, I feel like that's on on point with what we're talking about. That to that there can be a changing of the narrative, both personally, societally, culturally, through veterans writing, and that, and that the therapeutic does not need to be separate from the commercial, that people can read your stuff and enjoy your stuff, and it can also have a therapeutic value for you or for people reading it. But it doesn't necessarily need to be um, you know, notes to self. And the, oh, these are just diary entries, basically, uh, glorified diary entries. And, uh, and I'm just writing for therapy. It's like, hey, your therapy actually is going to have a commercial market, and there's people that are going to appreciate hearing what you have to say. Um, anyway, I'm kind of setting you up to talk about the nonprofit, but I guess there's a question in there as well. Yeah, I mean, the nonprofit has always been a way for me to showcase that the poetry has helped me change my narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's helped me to get on my feet and to become a better individual. You know, I, I think I have like a, a phrase, what is it? It's, it's find your passion, follow your purposeful path and blossom. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So my passion was and is writing and creating stories. Um, that's one of my passions, right? And that has provided me with a sustainable path that I can follow that can lead me to conversations with people where it changes their perception Mm. of veterans or it changes Mm -hmm. their perceptions of poetry or it changes their perceptions of combat, right? And that's always been the goal of the nonprofit is to make people think more about what veteran writing is what combat writing is what is what is veteran poetry you know what the fuck is that well let me tell you it's not you know roses are red violets are blue if you kiss me i'll kiss you too sort of bullshit it's 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 complicated shit that you know men and women have gone through that is a very specific part of history politics and culture which is war and when one goes through that, I think a lot of people have their own interpretations of that and people have their own understandings of that from whatever is around them and whatever they've seen through their life. But with Stand to Change and Narrative, what's beautiful about it is that you can present veteran poetry as a cathartic mechanism to improve your mental state, right? Yeah. Um, and when people go, really? Well, how, you know, and you tell them about the poetry and you tell them about, you know, poets in World War One and about how they would they would write poetry about their bullshit that they were going through. And then they would go out and go fight. And a lot of those guys died after they wrote their poetry. You know what I mean? Sure. And, you know, you, you show them that there was a connection of World War One poetry and that, you know, after 9-11, there was not a, there wasn't a, any veterans doing poetry. So what I saw was there was a void of veterans doing poetry. And I thought, well, I like writing poetry. I like hip hop. I like rap music. I like being, uh, you know, um, I like being authentic with words and expressing myself through words, right? In a, in a sort of rhyming sort of way, in a sort of artistic way. 
So why not tap into the poetry aspect and then market it as veteran fucking combat poetry? Because that's exactly what this is. It's not nice poetry. It's mean, violent, sort of, you know, brutal poetry. And it showcases into a world that most people never get to see. Because what I'm talking about in the poetry isn't some Navy SEAL mission or it isn't, you know, some rescue or whatever. It's fucking real bullshit on a day-to-day fucking basis. It's, you know, one of my haikus is addictive is war, a narcotic craved by few. Little know this truth. Yeah. I mean, fuck, dude, you tell that haiku to somebody and they're going to go, holy shit, man, because it's true. Well, it's true, but it also, you know, it's funny because I do think there's a lot of parallels between war and sex mm-hmm. and i think um I, I people much smarter than me have talked about this a lot but i think when dave grossman did on killing and on combat you know one of the points he made was that you know you go to a bookstore and there are shelves full of books about sex how to have better sex what do you do about sex if there's a problem with sex how do you fix it and all that he's like but there's no books about combat or killing um yet we we jump to the frivolous end of it you'll see tons of movies about it you'll see tons of action stuff constant gun battles you know macho stuff and all that but there was a that that meaty part of the subject matter the experiential storytelling the scientific breakdown all that stuff that was missing but it was it's there for sex i mean certainly you have sex in movies you have sex in the bookshelves you have tons of research like you can you can cover that soup to nuts but in but for the for professions in arms, there is no there there's a big chunk of the narrative that's missing, and that is the first person experiences that are captured in ways that people that are not privy to them can understand and appreciate them. And then there's the um the nonfiction aspect of it. So both the fictional and the nonfictional aspects need to be there. Um for people, I think, to fully appreciate the subject. And I think that's what the veteran writing community has, that, that you know, is really so recent, has really exploded, is that is the cultural piece of that and going, hey, this is accessible work that people can read and actually understand the experiences. And it fills in a gap in people's yeah. knowledge base about what war is, right? I mean, I think that's yeah. what that's, and you've been on the cusp of that really um you you really struck when the iron was hot it was like that 2015 16 17 period felt like when every there suddenly there was this big movement to start start having veterans right right yeah yeah so i mean when i cuz what i saw honestly is i saw a bunch of you know um a bunch of vets putting out like you know funny memes and shit here and there right. whatever right you know, and I saw, you know, some dudes, you know, writing like, you know, um, memoirs um, about war. And then, you know, like David Rose wrote yep. um, sure. No Joy, um, you know, like even like Leo Jenkins wrote On Assimilation, whatever he wrote when, before his second edition that came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, these are all, you know, GWAP post 9-11 guides, you know, and it's it's this area where, you know, there is people writing, right? There's people writing and there's people going, all right, I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to talk about my story. And then what I did is I wasn't ready to talk about a story. I wasn't ready to tell my four year story that was in Afghanistan because 
so many things happened in that story that I couldn't process in the time. You know, I went yeah. to jail for a prank phone call. I almost got kicked out of the Marine Corps. Like it was, you know, I got it. You went got, to jail for a prank phone call. Yeah, dude. That's a, yeah. Is that a whole thing in and of itself? Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole, okay. that's a, that's, okay. a whole, that's a whole thing. You know, I, and then with that, I got NJP, you know, then I broke, I broke my shoulder. I had to get surgery. I was a fucking like surf bum smoking weed in the core, like, you know, whatever the case was like, so there was, a, and then I went on my first appointment and then, you know, I, and then that happened in my second appointment. And then I tried out for fucking Marsoc and then I failed that because I blew out my shoulder again. So my whole four Wait, year. Hold on. Sorry. Well, was the NJP before your first deployment? Yeah. Oh, fuck. Okay. Boy, you really had a hot start to your career. Okay. Wow. Oh, dude. Good. Yeah. I was like a yeah. stud. Like I was a, I, I went to boot camp. I was a squad leader. I went to engineer school. <laughs> I like, I was getting, um, I was like, uh, I crushed it there. When I got to my, to the fleet, they made me like a fire team leader. And then I broke my shoulder and a week later I got fucking, I, I, we did this. We, I was hanging out with a bunch of friends and bullshit happened. And I had to end up going to jail. And then I got NJP for underage drinking, but fucking you know, hell. yeah, it was, a, I mean, the, my whole four years was a lot and it was something that I really didn't want to talk about. You know what I mean? Because even yeah, in yeah, my yeah. second appointment, it's taken me a long time to sit there and say, you know, on my second appointment, we got attacked by a 12 year old kid and we fucking killed him. You know, it's been, it's taken me a long time to say that I've never written that. I've never written that. So none of my books are going to write that because I don't want to fucking write that. I don't want to, I don't want to revisit that right now. I don't want to talk about that. You know, I'll say it to you and I'll say it to people, but I want to talk about, you know, the moments that led up to that or the moments after that, you know, because it's, those are, those are still for me. You know what I mean? Those are still for me to have. And, you know, I, I have, since I have written a bunch of shit about Afghanistan, you know, there are seldom moments like that, that I have to myself that are you know, I sometimes don't want to share with people. Right. So I, well, I didn't it's, want... it's, in, it's intimate. It's like right. asking somebody, Hey, what was sex like on your honeymoon? It's like, motherfucker, right. uh, you know, some exactly. stuff's just for me. Right. So like yeah. with that kind of stuff, you know, I, I haven't got to the point where I want to talk about that. I want to write about it. So, but I did, I, I was at a point where I want to write about something. I want to talk about something. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that it came out was poetry. So what I saw was nobody writing poetry about war. Okay, so what I did is I went on Google and I looked up veteran war poetry and a lot of shit came from World War One, you know, like in Flanders Mm. Fields, Gertrude Gertrude fucking Stein, um, you know. um, uh, Well, Hemingway's writing, although it wasn't always poetic. Yeah, Hemingway has. But certainly his his novels. Hemingway has like some some poetry here and there, but it's, you know, it's. um. But yeah, you know, like the Great Gatsby, um, Ezra Pound, uh, and Ezra Pound. Of, you know, there's yeah. there's people out there that you know and they wrote stories when they got back, whatever. So I was like, all right. So I looked up war poetry and I saw Brian Turner who wrote um, the fuck is that movie called? They made it into a fucking movie. Mm. The um, the War Locker, the Hurt Locker. Oh, okay. So the Hurt Locker, yeah, yeah, the Hurt Locker was a poem written by Brian Turner. Okay, interesting. In like 2003, and he won an award for it in 2004. Right, he was like one of the first teams in Iraq in 03 and shit. He came back and wrote a book. So Brian Turner was an is is an award winning poet, you know, a veteran poet. But the last shit that he wrote was like 2004. Mm. So I started looking around. I started seeing that like nobody is writing poetry right now right nobody's doing it especially for my generation of guys you know people that are like 30 years and younger are not doing it so i was like well if nobody's doing it 
and I do it, then I'll be the fucking only one doing it. <laughs> you know, that was like my thought. Right. That was my thought right. process, right? Right. So I wrote I wrote my first book in the summer of 2017, Outside the Wire, U.S. Marines Collection of Combat Poems and Short Stories, Volume mm-hmm. 1. I published that on the Marine Corps birthday 2017. And after I published that, David Rose hit me up and was like, hey, dude, I just wrote a poetry book as well, and I'm publishing it here soon. And then mm-hmm. Leo, and then he told me Leo Jenkins wrote a poetry book too. Right. And he's going to be publishing it like in the next two months or so. And I was like, damn, dude, just like that, there's now three of us. Yeah. Just like that, there's now three of us that all organically came to the same conclusion that nobody in the veteran community is writing poetry. But yeah. we all understood yeah. that. We all saw this and we all, we all, we all like latched onto that. So all three of us, relatively the same time frame, all published a poetry book. Relatively right in the same like six month time span. And then we all went on a book tour together. We did. And then we made a movie about it. And then that movie won some awards. And, you know, we kind of showed the veteran community that like, yo, dude, we never knew each other before this. We can all get together. We can go and do a book tour and read poetry to people and people will fucking come out to the veterans and read and and listen to us veterans read poetry. Sure. And, you know, with that, you know, I just I felt I also I also view like David and Leo. um, They like, yes, they're like contemporaries with me. But and and this is going to sound like super. um, It's a word I'm looking for. It's not cocky. It's it's gonna sound cocky. It's gonna sound um okay. it's gonna sound like a little bit cocky. But like I view me, David, and Leo on the same sort of level as like you know, people would view like John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, like Alexander Hamilton. Right. You're like founding the movement. It's like you were the first ones to break through in the movement. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so that's how I view us, right. right? Yeah. So I kind of view me and Leo as like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, right? Like, I feel like he's my, he's my contemporary competitive person. Like I, I'm, I'm, I feel like, and and I'm sure he doesn't feel, I mean, I don't know how he feels about it or whatever, but I just, I, I have, I have a lot of respect for Leo. I, I really enjoy Leo. I think he's a great human being. I think he writes poetry like very, very beautifully, but I think that him and I are always competing against one, one another. Um, and not like in a, in like a negative way, but like in a way that like, I want to be better and he knows that and he wants to be better. So we like use each other as like guide points. I feel like. Sure. If that no, makes that's sense. fair. That absolutely makes sense. And, and it's, and it's interesting. You say that, um, one of the, I, I haven't, I think that the movement of veteran art, especially coming out of GWAT is so new that there hasn't been a lot of time for people to build even friendly rivalries right. um, that much. So the fact you're even bringing this up to me is a little bit of a sign of the maturation of the community because we have the bandwidth now to tolerate friendly rivalries yeah. that hopefully don't become unfriendly rivalries, but just people being pushing each other to do better and looking over their shoulder and going, oh shit, I got to keep up with the Joneses a little bit. I got to make sure I'm publishing and make sure I'm refining my work and getting better and better at it. And it's literally what it is maturing. Yeah. It's literally what it is, man. Is because, you know, I've, you know, if, if I publish a book, you know, and then 
I see like David or Leo publish a book. I'm like, fuck, man, I got to publish another book. You know, like, what the fuck <laughs> am I doing? You know, and and honestly, yeah. I've, I've been publishing yeah. two books a fucking year since 2018. Yeah, so, you've been you've been you're like you're like the Woody Allen of 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 books. I mean, there's a lot you're putting out a lot of material. Yeah, that's man, a great I, thing. You I, know, I, I, I it's one of those things where like you know. I feel like it sometimes comes off between like us three, like David, Leo and I definitely sometimes comes off in my own opinion that like, I may be like, you know, I I feel like a lot of people, and this is because I've had conversations with people and they've told me this shit is that like, I think people think that I view myself like above other people in some sort of way that like, I think that I'm better than people or something, Mm. but and that's because, you know, people have told me this. This is what they think that they think of me, right? And, you know, that's fine or whatever. But the thing is, is that I really don't see myself above anybody or, or, or on any other different playing field than anybody. You know, everybody that writes poetry is on the same level, right? They're all, we're all on the same exact level. We're all veterans who are, you know, trying to create. We're all trying to tell stories. We're all voicing opinions. It's all blind men trying to describe the elephant, you know? Right, exactly. Everybody's at a different part of the elephant. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I genuinely believe that you know, I don't think that any one person's poetry is better than anybody else's poetry. Right. I genuinely don't, I don't, I don't believe that. Um, because that's for people to decide a hundred years from now. You know what I mean? That's not for me to say, I'm just here to create, you know, and I'm here to be pushed to create. And that's what Leo does for me. Right. And mm-hmm. he, I don't think he mm-hmm. knows that, you know, we, I've had never had this conversation with him because again, you know, we're just in, I'm in that, I'm in that, that mindset of like, you know, um, you know, he lives in Mexico. He doesn't have like an address, he, you know, like right. phones and shit. So it's hard, kind of hard to like even get like a line of communication with him. Yeah, anyway. sure, sure. But, you know, um, I think that by having him be who he is and being, an ambitious writer and being a prolific writer and also being a person who I think enjoys the competition as I do. I think that having him be on the same, like him and I are on the same mental understanding that, you know, like I'll always support Leo's books. I'll go buy him and stuff. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I do feel that there's like a like a friendly rivalry for sure, dude. I've always felt that. I've always but, from from the moment I feel like I met Leo, sure. I always felt like you know what, this is my contemporary, and this is going to be the guy that pushes me, and hopefully I can be on that level to where I push him. Well, uh, that's right, and 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 there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, shit, that's the Algonquin Roundtable. You know, that's the Paris expats. You know, that's and uh, any group of writers. I think there's always going to be that. I think the key is is doubling down on each person's individuality right that ultimately you know the the competition can be as far as output but it can't really be as far as content because it, uh, once you start mimicking someone else's content then you're no longer doing your own shit right. but i think yeah absolutely i think that's incredibly i think it's a healthy vibe and and i think that i think you're totally right i think that that friendly competition it it's good for the consumers it's good for the veteran artist community because right. people need the content. I, I, I think that makes total sense. Um, dude, I've got so much more I could talk to you about, but we've done two hours and I feel like I'm just taking you away from your son for way too much. Um, 
this was fucking awesome. I, I come, will you come back on at some point? Can we do dude, another yeah, one of these? Let's, let's do like a part two, dude. Let's I, I, do it. <laughs> I, I would love to fucking do that. I would love, there's so much more I'd love to talk about because I didn't even get into like uh, uh, so many subjects about going, how you actually transition from the military into writing and your writing process and all the rest of it. This was fucking beyond fascinating though. Um, let's do this again in the dangerous yeah. in your future. I'm down. I'm, I'm definitely down. I'm always down to, uh, you know, because I, I honestly never talk about any of this shit. So just to sit here and have, and have a conversation about it is, is is good for me, you know? Great. Great. Hey, we'll do it, brother. Thank you for coming on. No problem. Man. Thank you so much for having me. That was the savage wonder of Justin Egan. We will have Justin back on for many reasons, not the least of which that we could have gone, you know, another couple of hours, but also he's so prolific. There's going to be more stuff he's going to write that we're going to want to talk about. So I can't wait for the next time. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the next time. Okay. Let's do some shameless plugs. Um, The parlor at our Quaker Avenue headquarters here in Cornwall, New York is up and running again. In September, we took off for August, but is up with the 2018 Drama Desk award-winning admissions by Joshua Harmon. We're doing stage readings of that every Saturday night. Um, it's low to no cost. It's a pay-what-you-can ticket. Um, yeah, so if you're in the area, stop by. Um, I say stop by when what I mean is get your tickets seven to ten days in advance because we do sell out. Uh, you are always welcome to show up on the night of because sometimes people do drop at the last minute without letting us know if that's the case. Great. We're happy to let you in, but that's, you know, risking your leisure time. So if you want to play it safe, just book in advance, make your life easy. And, uh, we'd love to see you here for the show. Other things coming up. September's a busy month for us. Um, some things that are going to be accessible to the public, some things that aren't. Oh, okay. Anthony Roberts, our good friend is, it's kind of a funny story. So what happened is after the Savage Wonder Festival, when I was recovering from heat stroke and uh, <laughs> trying to put my life back together after putting everything on hold for a couple months to get that thing done, um, Anthony hits me up and goes, hey, I mean, literally, I think it was like that week or I don't know, 48, 72 hours after. And if I had to guess, I think... I think Anthony was one of those guys who really uh, enjoys the shit out of live performance. And I think he was really turned on at the festival and he was just G'd up and he calls me up and he's like, Hey, um, I want to do a benefit for you guys. And I was like, okay, what do I have to do? Because right now I'm tapped the fuck out. (laughs) Like I have no stamina to do to do put together anything. He's like, no, 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 no. You don't have to do anything. I'll do it all. I was like, all right. And he's like, yeah, I got this. And um, God, I got to get the name of the other charity that I keep forgetting. Um, anyway, but he's like, he had another charity in mind that he wanted to uh, make a beneficiary of the event. He's like, yeah, for you know, both your organizations, like I want to do something KGB bar in the city. And I was like, I was like, look, if you want to do this and put it together and just give us the proceeds, I mean, I'm, I'm a nonprofit. I'm a whore. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to complain. Um, and he's like, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. And he's gone ahead and, uh, you know, just gotten a lot of familiar names. Uh, and by, when I say familiar names, I mean familiar to you guys. Um, you know, uh, Dex, Justin Egan, uh, Buck Bolliard, 
Mason Roderick, I think, is going to be there. Uh, God, I'm brain farting. I think Cherie is going to be there, Cherie Angle. Um, ben Fortier. I'm going to stop because I know I'm going to forget people because I'm really just going off the top of my head. But anyway, it's a bunch of folks that uh, have either been on this show, been at the Savage Wonder Festival, you know, just really good, solid, awesome folks uh, that are, are quality poets. And, of course, Anthony himself. Uh, so they are going to do uh, a series, uh, you know, a, a whole night of poetry at KGB Bar, and uh, we'll split the proceeds with the other organization whose name i got to remember. Um, anyway, that's September 22nd, which is a Thursday night at the KGB Bar in New York City. Um, we'll put out details on that on our Instagram and all that, but I think I've told you pretty much what you need to know. Uh, if you're in the New York City area, if you know somebody that's in the New York City area, certainly if they're a veteran, but by all means, they certainly don't have to be a veteran. Um, you know, this is for the public. Uh, come on out. We appreciate it because, um, yeah, it's great to not have to raise our own money for one night. And uh, really appreciate Anthony putting this together. And he's, it looks like he's been having a blast with it. It really actually pisses me off because he's been over there doing iMovie, uh, like, you know, uh, intros uh, and, and promos for the event. And uh, like having people sending clips and talking about it. And I'm like, you fucking asshole. Like that's, I, mean, I should be doing that. I don't have the stamina. Like we've got so much going on. And I haven't been able to do it. And he's over there really just polishing and crafting these awesome promos. And I'm like, ah, oh, God, you're putting me to shame. But it's awesome. And I appreciate his enthusiasm and his willingness to do this. And uh, yeah, it should be a very, very cool event. So um, by all means, come on out and support. If you're in the area, we'd love to see you out there we have some other stuff to talk about but i don't think i can announce it yet yeah i'm gonna hold off on that i think until next week so there will be other stuff that we're going to talk about in the dangerously near future but i'm going to hold off until next week to talk about it um other than that i think that's all the shameless plugging i really have to do if you're listening to this show on itunes obviously we would appreciate a five-star review. Say whatever you want to us. Questions, comments, snide remarks. But if you could attach it to five stars, we would deeply appreciate it. And on that note, yeah, I mean, again, anything you want to know about us, go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org. That's probably good. I should probably give the website, right? V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org, vetrep.org. That is your one-stop shop for any and everything related to Veterans Repertory Theater. Um, we have links going to the Savage Wonder Festival from there. We have, you know, all of our lines of effort uh, can be are, are on that site. So that is the place that you should go. Okay, my thanks, as always, to our producer, Michael Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of Veterans Repertory Theater, see you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all. <laughs>